stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together? Remember, Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey. Verse 28 of Acts 14 says, They remain no little time with the disciples there in Antioch. And we come to verse 1 of Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for the gospel. Uh, We're grateful for the the good news that we can come into relationship with you through our, our faith in your son, Jesus. Uh, we pray that as we, we think about your son Jesus, we would grow in our love for you, that we'd be more in, in awe of, of your work and bringing us into relationship with you through faith in him. We pray that we would be diligent to contend for this, this truth, this good news as we proclaim it to others. And we pray that you protect our church, that you'd help us to, to remain faithful to the gospel message and, and all of its implications in our lives. Help us to grow in unity in our faith. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last fall, you may remember, we spent three weeks talking about issues of conscience. We, we called that three-week series a, a plea for unity in the church. And we were talking about different kind of different tiers of issues. Remember we talked about some issues are what we call first tier issues. These are are issues dealing with the gospel. They're the the most important issues that we can wrestle with as as a church. They are issues we must be in agreement about. So a a first tier gospel level issue, there's there's no room for debate. We can't debate whether or not Jesus is fully God. We we cannot debate whether or not we're sinners in need of a Savior. We we can't debate whether or not it's faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that saves us. That's a those are first tier issues. We we don't argue about those. We we are in conformity to what God's word says on those on those issues. We we said there are also some some second tier issues. These are issues that are very important, and they're issues that are so important it makes it difficult for us to do church with, with people who make differ on these second-tier issues. So, for example, how we administer baptism or perhaps what we believe about uh, the role of women in, in leadership in a church and preaching and teaching. Those are, those are really important issues, but if a person disagrees with us on those issues, we're not going to say, well, you're not a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. It's an important issue. It's going to be hard to do church life together, but not impossible, but difficult, and so th- those are very important issues. And we talked about, and we, and we want to pursue unity in those, those areas too. Then we talked about third-tier issues, conscience-level issues. These, these are issues that we're going to have some, some disagreements on, but we're going to 
function in a church together despite those differences. In fact, as we talked about a plea for unity, we said it's, it's God's command on us that we pursue unity even when we have very significant differences of opinions. Maybe we have different opinion on, on something political or we have a different opinion about how to school our children or we have some differences of opinions about what sort of entertainment is acceptable for a believer. But what, what we all want to do is we say, okay, on these issues where we have different, different conscience convictions, we all want to pursue the glory of God. And we believe God is glorified through unity. And so I'm going to do these things. And the reason I'm going to be doing these things is because I want to glorify God. And I'm going to trust that you have that same desire. And the reason you're doing what you're doing is because you believe that's the best way to glorify God in, in your life as well. And so those are kind of we third tier issues. And there's also like wisdom issues. What, what's the best type of car to buy? We have difference of opinion there. And then just like preference issues What's the best way to eat a burger, you know, whatever. Those, or do we eat a burger at all? Um, oh. <laughs> Hungry. Those, those, are, those, are, those are not significant issues, right? And, and so my, my plea in the fall was a plea for unity as we deal with conscience level issues and below. We, we must be unified. Well, now... Today, we're, we're switching gears a little bit over the next few weeks as we're here in Acts 15. We are talking about first-tier level issues. And as we talk about gospel issues, I thought about entitling this series a plea for disunity, okay? Because these, these are issues we cannot be unified with if someone is going to disagree with what God's Word clearly says about the gospel. I decided not to call it that because it would probably send the, the wrong signal we, we don't want to pursue disunity, but what we want to do is whenever there is disunity, whenever disunity exists, whenever a person has, has separated themselves from the gospel message, we need to, to recognize that and, and call that out and say, okay, this is not, the thing that you're saying is not the gospel. Because if we fail to do that as a church, we fail in our mission. Our, our mission is to implore people to be reconciled to God. And if, if we're going to get that message wrong of how to be reconciled to God, then we're going to fail in the mission that God has called us to. In fact, here's the main thing that I want us to think about over uh, the message this morning. As we look at the first five verses, when threats to the gospel exist within a church, we must lovingly and forcibly confront them to preserve the ministry of the church for the glory of God. When there's a threat to the gospel, when there's a threat to the message of how a person can be reconciled to God and, and the fruit of that in their lives, when, when, when that threat exists within a church, even within a church where we, we love one another and we, we desire to stay in relationship, when that threat exists, we have to, we must, for the glory of God, lovingly and forcibly confront that threat, those threats. We have to to preserve the ministry that God's called us to. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do kind of look at three sets of three things. We're going to, first of all, talk about three things to, to, to notice about the conflict here in these verses. Then we're going to talk about uh, three ways to recognize threats to the gospel. And then we're going to finish by talking about three ways to contend for the gospel within a church. So first of all, let's, let's talk about three things to notice about the conflict here in Acts chapter 15. And look at the text with me. And look at verse 1. It says, Some men came down from Judea 
and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the first thing that I want you to see is we notice three things about the conflict. First of all, notice this. Notice that the gospel is threatened by false teachers. Number one, the gospel here is threatened by false teachers. I want you to hang with me here. We're going to flip a little bit between Acts and the book of Galatians. In fact, keep your finger in Acts and flip over to Galatians chapter 2. As you do that, let me remind you, and and again, kind of stay with me. I want us to understand the the nature of the the conflict that's taking place here. Let, Let me remind you of what's been happening in Paul's life. Remember, Paul, then called Saul, Here's the gospel message and, and responds to it and, and believes it earlier in the book of Acts. And it's in Acts chapter 9 that, that Paul, then called Saul, is converted. And it's in Acts chapter 9, kind of beginning in verse 26, where he, he goes to Jerusalem. So imagine we have, we have Jerusalem down here. And in Acts chapter 9, Paul goes to Jerusalem. And remember, the, the church in Jerusalem is pretty nervous about this guy who's been ravaging the church, killing people, joining it. And so they're a little hesitant to welcome him. And remember, in Acts chapter 9, Barnabas welcomes Saul, and he introduces him to other believers. And so that's, that's in Acts chapter 9. And I think Galatians chapter 1, 18 through 23, describes Paul going to Jerusalem at that point. And then remember... Uh, Paul continues to grow in the faith, and it's in uh, Acts chapter 11 that Barnabas takes Paul. So, so they're in Jerusalem. Barnabas is in Antioch, Antioch in Syria. And at some point in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas grabs Paul, and he takes him to Antioch, and they spend some time there helping the church in Antioch and Syria grow in the, their faith. And remember, it's in Acts chapter 11 where Barnabas, they're, they're in Antioch, and Barnabas and Paul, there's some, some prophets who arrive there in Antioch, and they, they tell them there's going to be a coming famine in Jerusalem. And so Barnabas and Paul are sent by the church in Antioch down to Jerusalem with a gift for the church in Jerusalem. And I think, if you're in the book of Galatians, I think it's Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, describes that visit. So it's not given a lot of detail in Acts chapter 11. I think it's in verse 30. But Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul, Paul talks about that visit. He says, you know, I went down there. I talked to some of the pillars of the church, and we all agreed on the gospel message. He goes, I didn't get the gospel message from them. I got it from God. But I think he's describing in verses 1 through 10 that, that visit to Jerusalem. Then what happens? They're in, they're in Jerusalem. Paul, Paul and Barnabas are. They go back from Jerusalem, back to Antioch with John Mark. And then remember what happens? So what we've been talking about the, the last few weeks. Paul and Barnabas, they go on their first missionary, they leave the church in Antioch, they go on their first missionary journey, they go in the region of Galatia, and they, they, then they go back and they plant churches and they come back and now they're back in Antioch. And at the end of chapter 14, verse 28, it says they remain no little time with the disciples there in Antioch. So they're in Antioch, the church in Jerusalem is down in Jerusalem, that's pretty easy to remember, right? Where's the church in Jerusalem? It's Jerusalem. And if you're in Galatians, I think Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul describes what happens in Antioch. Whenever, so it's, 
the end of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are there in Antioch. This is they remain there in a little time. And at some point, the church in Jerusalem, Peter leaves and he spends some time in Antioch. And then some other people come from the church in Jerusalem, some, some people who are associated with James. They come from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. And here's what Paul says happens in verse 11. He says, when C- this is in Galatians 2. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So they're there in Antioch, Peter's there, things are going well, then these people from Jerusalem come, and, and now Peter, be, and they begin to, to teach this, this false doctrine we'll talk about here in Acts chapter 15 in just a minute, and as they, they teach that, uh, Peter pulls away from the other Gentiles there in Antioch, Paul opposes him. And it says in verse 13 of Acts chapter 2, the rest of the Jews are also acting hypocritically. Even Barnabas at this point is led astray by their hypocrisy. And Paul, Paul calls it out. Remember we talked about this when we went through the book of Galatians. He says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel were saved by faith in, in, in Jesus Christ alone. And he says, I called it out. I said to, to Peter, to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth. This is Galatians 2.15. We're not Gentile sinners, yet we know what? That a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So they're there in Antioch. Peter comes. He acts hypocritically when the, when the other people from Jerusalem come, and even Barnabas is, is starting to act like a hypocrite, and, and Paul just calls it out. He says, look, guys, we know the gospel. You don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. We're not justified by works of the law. We are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's how we're justified. That's, I, I believe that's describing what takes place here in Acts 15. So go back to Acts 15. And Luke doesn't give us all the details of what happened that Paul does in Galatians. For example, we know that Barnabas and Peter respond to Paul's word of exhortation in Galatians 2. But here's, here's what we see in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea. This is describing those people from Jerusalem coming up to Antioch. And they're teaching the brothers, and that's describing this ongoing teaching. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you, you can't be saved. In other words, unless you become Jewish, you can't be confident of your relationship with God. They hadn't, these men had not been officially sanctioned by the church. They, they clearly represented a, a section, a, a sect within that church in Jerusalem that believed that people needed to become Jewish in order to be right before God. And we talked about this in Galatians as well. There are probably several different strains of this false teaching. Some people are saying, look, unless you become a Jew, you can't be justified, you can't have salvation at all. Some people were probably, were probably saying, look, you can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but in order to continue in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to follow the law. And Paul is going to call both out. He's going to call, call all that false teaching out. And that's, that's the second thing I want you to see here. The false teachers are confronted. So the gospel's threatened by these false teachers. People are saying you need to add works to the gospel in order to be saved. 
and that, that false teaching, the false teachers are confronted. Look at verse 2. It says, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. There's a high level of discord and disunity. That, that word that's translated dissension is also translated riot in other places in, in Acts and the Gospel of Luke. In other words, things, things are tense. Imagine you're a Pharisee, and you've been trained in, in the Old Covenant, in, in the Scriptures, and you rightly believe that, that these are God's words. And now you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you've believed the gospel. You believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But, but now someone is saying, you don't need to, to be in obedience to all the Old Covenant. Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Covenant. Now you're, you're part of the New Covenant only by faith in Jesus Christ. You can imagine how, if you're a Pharisee, that, that, that message is, is going to sound strange. What, what do you mean you don't have to follow all the, all the commandments and the laws and the regulations that God gave us? What do you mean that, that Christ fulfills all those things? What do you mean that those things were only for a, a certain group of people at a certain amount of time? That, that, that seems strange to them. And so as Paul begins to preach that, they say, no, 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 that, that can't be the case. And Paul says, yes, this is the case. And so there's a, a strong disagreement between those of the Pharisees who become Christians and believe that Jesus is the Messiah and Paul who's saying, look, the Gentile and Peter and Barnabas who are saying, look, th these Gentiles don't need to become Jewish in order to become Christian. All they need to do is believe in Jesus Christ. And so Paul and Barnabas, recognizing the danger of this false teaching, of failing to understand the, the newness of the new covenant and who Jesus Christ is, they confront this teaching forcibly. And I don't know about you, but I certainly would not have wanted to have been confronted by Paul. Think about Galatians. In Galatians, he's, he's dealing with some of these same types of false teachings. And how does, how does he begin? Like, he doesn't even begin with a, hi, how are you doing, really, in Galatians. He just starts off, he goes, look, I'm shocked that you guys are so quickly deserting the, the, the faith, deserting the one who's called you. I'm shocked by how, how foolish you are, he says in chapter 3. Uh, who, who's bewitched you? What's your problem? It's, it's forcible, it's direct, because the gospel is at stake. The good news, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And, and Paul calls those who would abandon that message, foolish. The third thing that I want you to see then here, number three, notice this, that the wider church is brought into this, this disagreement, into this conflict. The, the text continues in verse two, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others are appointed, they're selected by the church in Antioch to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this, this question. That word question refers to a, a controversial issue. Uh, Paul would tell Timothy and Titus, don't argue about silly controversies. Don't, don't get involved in, in skirmishes and conflicts and quarrels about unimportant things. So don't get involved in arguments about genealogies. Don't get in, involved in speculations about myths and superstitions and things like that. I, I, was, I was talking with a young man who is studying to be a pastor a few weeks ago, and he was talking with me about some, what, what I call, uh, 
hot sports opinions. You know, as, as pastors, we have these hot sports opinions that we, we feel the need sometimes to, to spout off. And he says, you know, how, how, do you, how do you decide when to share your opinion about something and, and, and when not to? And, and I don't know why you'd ask someone like me that. Um, because I have some hot sports opinions and about theological issues or about social issues. And, and um, I, I told him, I said, look, uh, you just have to be careful, right? There are some things I said four or five years ago, some, some political things I said four or five years ago that the people still want to argue with me about. And I said, you know what, it's not wrong to have those opinions. It's not wrong to talk about the right, right context. And, and it's good to apply scripture in all areas of life. But you just have to realize as, as you enter into controversies, as you issue, enter into to quarrels, you're going you're to have to deal with that, right? And so I said, it's far better, I think, as a pastor to, to spend your time, if you're going to spend your time disagreeing about things, you know, make, make sure they're important things. Make sure they're things related to the gospel, and that's what's happening here. Paul would tell Timothy and Titus, his pastors, look, don't, don't get involved in the foolish controversies, but here we're talking about a, a question that's of vital importance. It's about the gospel. And so the local church, the church in Antioch, sends them to Jerusalem, to the wider church, say, okay, we, we have to talk about this. This needs to be dealt with. Because the, the false teaching is coming from this church, and it's also in the area where the apostles are. Now, it's important. Paul and the church in Antioch and Barnabas, they're not saying the church in Jerusalem gets to decide what the gospel is. God decides what the gospel is. No group of men and women gets to decide what the gospel is. That's God. But we're going to go to this, this wider church, and we're going to, to talk about this issue that threatens the gospel. Now, they, they take this journey from Antioch to Jerusalem, maybe about a month long. And, and I want you to notice this, too, as you look at verse 3. As they're going through Phoenicia and Samaria, between the area of, of where the church in Antioch is and Jerusalem, it says that the last part of verse 3, it says they are going and they're talking to believers and they're describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they're bringing, it says, great joy to all the brothers, as they, as they hear about the good news that God has saved the Gentiles, people are rejoicing. And that's what the gospel does, is people hear the good news of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone and hear about other people responding to it. There's joy. Legalism, we're going to see, brings burden. We'll talk about this in the coming weeks. But the gospel brings joy and relief. The good news, we're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, by God's grace alone. Verse 4, they come to Jerusalem, the church rejoices at their presence, the apostles and elders are rejoicing about all that God has done, but look at verse 5, but, but, some people are not happy about God's gospel work. It says it's a group, and it says that they're believers. In other words, I think it's important for us to understand that even people who are believers can have some very wrong understanding about the gospel at times and must be confronted. They're believing that it's necessary to circumcise these new believers. We need to order them to keep the law of Moses. And maybe they weren't saying that it was necessary for justification, but in terms of sanctification, of growing in the walk with the Lord, they need to start doing these these requirements that Moses and the law would place on them. It's necessary. We're going to talk in the coming weeks about the council and, and the aftermath from the council, but let's, let's 
Let's talk the rest of our time this morning then about, about this, this type of conflict. The next thing I want us to look at are, are, are three warning signs that the gospel is under attack. You say, okay, Daniel, uh, serious conflict can obviously happen between Christians. I, I can be having a relationship with another Christian and we start talking about something and we, we disagree on something and, and we get really upset and worked up about this issue. How do I know if this is a gospel issue or just kind of a conscience issue or a second tier issue? Like, how do I understand that it's the, the gospel at stake? You think about this chapter. The chapter begins with conflict and it ends with conflict. So chapter 15 begins with this gospel level conflict, but it ends, interestingly, with a conflict between Paul and Barnabas. But it's a serious conflict. It means that they can't do some ministry together. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks, but it's not a gospel level conflict. You say, okay, I'm having this disagreement with another believer, or I see them teaching something that's concerning. How do I discern what level of issue we're talking about here? Well, let me just share with you three warning signs I believe that the gospel is under attack. And I, I think there are kind of two errors we can make when dealing with controversy. One is to make everything a gospel-level issue. You know, this, this person disagrees with me on this issue, and I'm, I'm going to call them out. I'm going to call them, uh, you know, I'm going to say that they're undermining the gospel, and it's, it's not a gospel issue. Or we can lack willingness to fight over, over anything. You know, I've, I've sometimes uh, frustrated some of my Roman Catholic friends as we've been talking, and I said, look, we we believe a different gospel. You know, what, what you're saying is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, we, we both love Jesus. Well, you know, here in this passage, everyone is saying good things about Jesus, and yet it's a, it's a gospel issue. Both sides involved in this conflict would, would say, I, lo- I love Jesus, I believe he's the Messiah, but, but it's a, it's a gospel-level error. It's an error that will lead to condemnation. So here's, here's a couple warning signs that the gospel is under attack. Number one, when we see something being added to the gospel, that's an attack on the gospel. It's an attack on the gospel. That's what's happening here. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and keep the law. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. He saves you. And then also obey the Mosaic law. Keep the custom. Be, be circumcised. Become a Jew. That's adding to the gospel. We have to be crystal clear as we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. There's no human work that a person can engage in to merit salvation. Someone says, well, you have to, to show God your good works. You need to give a certain amount of money. You need to, to, to do this. Whatever it is, that's a false gospel. Uh, Tony Carbaugh was teaching our, our men at the men's breakfast last uh, yesterday. And he quoted Titus 3. Titus 3 talks about how we were lost. And then verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, not by our works, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Christian life begins and continues by God's grace and God's grace alone as we trust in his son, Jesus Christ. That's to, to, to fail in communicating that message is to 
fail and rightly understand the gospel. That's, a, that's an attack on the gospel to add works to salvation. But here's another warning sign. Here's another warning sign that the gospel's under attack. Number two, something is being subtracted from the gospel. You say, well, Daniel, I thought you said that it's, it's faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Yeah, that, that's, that's correct, by God's grace alone. And yet sometimes as people present the gospel, they, they share a different gospel by minimizing some core truths of the gospel. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 would talk about the gospel that he delivered to them as a first importance. He says, you know, I, I deliver this gospel to you as first important. That, that What did Christ do? He died for our sins according to the scripture. And so to minimize who Jesus Christ is or to minimize the reality of sin, sometimes people as they present the gospel won't talk about the reality of sin and that person's need for salvation to be delivered from God's wrath, all those are ways that the gospel can be subtracted from. Or a person might say, we don't have to necessarily believe in Jesus to be saved. God can just save anybody. What does Paul say in Acts 17? He says that the times of ignorance that God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so to, to fail to call people to repentance, to fail to call people to turn from their sins as they place their faith in Jesus Christ, that's, that's subtracting from the gospel. It's a, it's a false gospel. Or a third warning sign that the gospel is under attack is there's something that's contradicting the testimony of the gospel. If someone is contradicting the testimony of the gospel, that's also an attack on the gospel. In other words, God calls us to turn from sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ. And the gospel tells us that as we, we place, the good news tells us that as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, by God's work of regeneration, we have a, a, a new life. It's what allows us to place our faith in Jesus Christ. And now, to, to call someone to continue to live in a lifestyle of sin, or to fail to call a lifestyle of sin, sin, and to encourage others to do the same, that's, that's encouraging someone to live a life that's in direct contradiction to the gospel that God has proclaimed, the good news of new life in his son, Jesus. Over and over again, we're, we're warned in Scripture that there's, there's a lifestyle, a commitment to sin that can reveal that our hearts have not been changed, that a person hasn't truly received the gospel. And so to, to fail to acknowledge that, which I think is something that's really happened over the last 20 years, to fail to, to call someone who's sinning a person who's not living in obedience to the gospel, to fail to do that undermines the gospel message. It's an attack on the gospel, Peter, uh, John would say in 1 John chapter 2, don't love the things of the world. Don't love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John chapter 3, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Listen to this. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Over and over again, we're warned there's a there's a lifestyle, a pattern of habitual sin that can reveal that a person is, is not truly a believer, has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so what do we need to do? We need to call people, all people, to repentance. And as a person who's truly in Christ hears a call to repentance, they're going to respond to that. So all these three things are warning signs that the gospel message is under attack. You say, well, Help me out here, Daniel. <laughs> give, give, give me some specifics. Well, for example, I mentioned Roman Catholic theology earlier. A, a per, person begins to teach that a person needs to, to do these things, to, to perform these sacraments in order to receive God's 
God's grace to, to slowly, in this, this process of justification, is that a gospel-level issue? Yes. Why? Because something's being added to the gospel. That's a, that's a first-tier issue. Am I saying that individual Catholics aren't Christians? No, absolutely individual Catholics can be Christians as they place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. But that, that teaching that there's something else that has to be added to the gospel, that's not the gospel. It's a first-tier issue. He said, well, you know, last week, Daniel, you mentioned, uh, this last week, maybe two weeks ago, the, the danger of multi-site churches. And, and you kind of said some negative things about multi-site churches. Is, is that a gospel-level issue? No, that's not a gospel-level issue. You know, we have some differences of opinions on that. And I can be right, and other people can be wrong. That's fine. Uh, that is, no. No, 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 no. Here, here that's not a gospel-level issue. That's, that's even sometimes a wisdom issue. That's, that's not, you know, we're not going to break fellowship with other believers about that, right? That'd be, that'd, be, that'd be disobedient to God. That's not a gospel issue. You say, what about, what about uh, so-called same-sex marriage? That's a gospel issue. That's calling people to, to live a lifestyle that's in direct disobedience to what God says a person should be doing. And so to, to do that and to encourage people to live in disobedience to God, that's a gospel issue. It's clearly, clearly in Scripture that's not how we're to live in obedience to God and to encourage people to, to live in contradiction to that. That's denying the gospel, the fruit of the gospel in a person's life. It's interesting. Someone asked me about this. Someone said, Daniel, um, I've heard, and we're not going to talk about a lot about this this morning, but a lot of people have asked me over the last few weeks and months uh, about critical race theory. Is that, is that a gospel issue? There's, I've heard about this thing called critical race theory and how dangerous it is. Is, is, that, a, is that a gospel level issue? And for those of you who, who don't know much about what critical race theory is, we're not going to talk a lot about it this morning, but it's an interesting question. And uh, the bottom line, even people who've asked me, I said, well, what, do you, what is that? What does that phrase mean? They say, I don't know. And I say, well, I don't either, right? I mean, I don't exactly know what you mean whenever you use that phrase. And many people have spent many years studying this so they can misunderstand it. And, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're meaning by this. But some people have, have used that phrase, and uh, some people who affirm critical race theories have, have said statements like this. They've said, you can't be anti-racist if you're homophobic or transphobic. So, in other words, if you believe homosexuality is wrong, you're also a racist, or you believe that it's, it's wrong to, uh, per, to identify as a gender you weren't born with, you're also a racist. Well, of course, that's, that's a contradiction to the gospel, right? That's incredibly anti-gospel. Or some people have said, who affirm critical race theory, have said, biblical inerrancy and infallibility are orthodoxies of white supremacist thought. Okay, well, that's, that's silliness, right? That's, that's not, that's, that's a contrary, I would have grave concerns with, with that, obviously. But some people, some people have said, look, um, and they, they've used some language and they, they think that they're talking about critical race theory and they've said, look, it's, it's important, uh, it's important for believers to hear from people uh, who are from different ethnicities or backgrounds than they are. Well, that seems pretty smart to me, you know. I'm reading a, a great book right now called The Black, well, there's some, some great things in it called The Black Fundamentalists about uh, brothers and sisters from the African-American uh, tradition who have, in the early 1900s, were defending the gospel and defending great truth. I, I need to hear their, pers- but they were also having some things and pr- some perspectives that people who uh, were, were part of my, my parents' church and grandparents' church weren't identifying as important issues. And so I, I, I need to learn from that. So if you mean that, well, this, of course that's not a, 
a, um, a contradiction of the gospel. So we'll talk more about that in four weeks as we talk about principles for ethnic unity. But, but that, that's, those are the things we see as warning signs for the gospel and things that we say, okay, that's, that's not an attack on the gospel. You say, okay, well, how do we contend for the gospel within the church? Here, let's talk about three principles then for contending for the gospel in the church. That the gospel's under attack, what do I do? What do I do? Number one, a threat to the gospel must be confronted theologically. Whenever the gospel is under attack, there's a, there's a theological underpinning that, that, that is the, the foundation of that attack. And over the last hundred years or so in the Protestant church, there's been a terrible understanding of theology and its, and its importance. Theology is seen as just kind of this academic thing that a certain group concerns itself with but, but isn't essential for the Christian life. We live in a culture where it is far easier to, to feel than to think. I'm, I'm, much more, I'm much more desirous of experiencing truth or my experiencing a feeling that kind of feels like truth that I am thinking deeply about what actually is true. I'm far more likely to watch a TikTok video about someone's experience with God than I'm re- I am to read scripture and understand what God says about experiences with him. I'm much more likely to listen to a song about an experience with God than I am to, to see what God has to say about how to think about him. Now, what I'm saying, believer, God has called you to think deeply about him. But it's not just an academic knowledge. I don't, I don't think about God the same way I think about Winston Churchill or, or Abraham Lincoln. That's, that's not how I think about God. It's not that type of, of thinking and studying. It, it's more like, and it's not a perfect analogy, it is, but it's more like the thinking and the studying I, I do of my wife with, with whom I'm in a relationship with. I, I want to know her deeply. I want to know her well. Uh, our anniversary was yesterday, so you can be sure to tell her congratulations and uh, good job. Uh, if you see here this morning, our, our 22nd anniversary was yesterday. And uh, you better believe, I want to know her well. I want to make sure I don't mess up the anniversary, right? And so we, we, uh, we were kind of talking about this week, and I, I feel like I know her pretty well. I said, look, uh, sweetie, Saturday is going to be pretty busy. Our anniversary day is going to be pretty busy. What do you think about celebrating it next week on this day where it's going to be a kind of a laid back day and we can just enjoy the time together. And she said, oh, that sounds, that sounds great. Said, okay, perfect. But then I'm 22 years into this thing. Uh, Friday, I had that feeling, right? Like, are we really on the same page here? And I had that at 6, 6 p.m. I had this, this sinking feeling like I have not gotten her a gift. I think we said that we're holding off on that. We're going to do some things together in the fall that we said are the gift. And I'm going to double check on this one, you know. And so I, I double-checked with her that evening. I said, hey, what did you get me for anniversary? Just roughly the, the size. And she goes, oh, I, I got you nothing. I said, perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> That's what I thought we were doing. But I want to I make, sure, make sure I'm on the right page here. And I still, Saturday morning, I woke up with a little like, <gasps> you know, like that, that adrenaline rush. I think I'm doing the right thing. But uh, if you're newly married, do not try this. Do not try this. This is like, this is a veteran move, okay? So anyway, talking with her, okay, what, what's the best way to show you that I love you? Because I, I do. It's, I, I study her not because I want to pass some Whitney test. 
although in marriage there's that too, but because I love her. I love, what, I love being in a relationship with her. I want to know her so that I can, I can honor her. And, and, the, and to an even greater degree, that's what theology is with God. God is a person with whom we are in relationship with, and we need to know him, not just our thoughts about what he might like, but who he is. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 4. As as Moses speaks for the Lord in Deuteronomy 4, he says, Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you. Do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Don't add to the word, don't take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you. I've taught you, this is verse 5, statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of them. Only take care. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. They depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Verse 14, the Lord commanded me at at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess. Watch yourselves carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out in the midst of the fire. You're talking about God God didn't appear, appear in a form, so don't make idols. In other words, God must be worshiped according to who he really is. And you can't just make that up on the fly. You can't say, you know what? I, I watched this TikTok video that makes me think this way about God, so this is how I'm going to worship him. I kind, of like, I kind of respond emotionally to this at a concert, so that's what I want to do in a church service. No, we come to God's word and say, okay, God, who do you say that you are? Threats to the gospel must be confronted theologically, and by theologically, theologically, I don't mean academically only. I mean, we come to God's word and we say, okay, God, who do you tell us that you are? What do you tell us about your gospel message? And that's, that's how I'm going to respond to him. Deuteronomy 12, 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God the way that other nations do. For every abominable thing that the Lord your God hates, they've done for their gods. They even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. Ephesians 4.14 describes little children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And that's where we are culturally, church. The Protestant church gets one wind of doctrine, whoosh, and so we're over here. There's another wind of doctrine, whoosh, we're over here. And God calls us, look, know who I am. Know what holiness looks like, devotion to me, and pursue that. A threat to the gospel can't just be confronted by our emotions. That feels wrong, but must be confronted theologically. This is what God says about who he is and how he must be worshipped. Last two, we're going to talk more about these in the coming weeks. Number two, a threat to the gospel must be confronted clearly and forcibly. I don't mean meanly. I don't mean harshly in the sense of name, calling, but I mean forcibly that we're not wishy-washy. We say, okay, here's the gospel issue, and and here's why we're talking about this. And and you need to, if you're the one teaching this, you need to understand this is in direct contradiction to what God says about himself. And I'm going to say this in a kind way, if possible, a winsome way, because I I recognize that my desire is, is, first of all, to protect the church, to protect other believers, but I also would desire that God would bring this person to repentance. I, I believe that the people who are part of this sect here in Acts 15, some of them are going to respond well. And some of them are going to, as the church comes together and debates this and talks about this and they hear about the work of God, they're going to, those who are believers are going to, to hear what James 
in particular says, or Peter says, then they say, you know what? That's right. I'm wrong. And so we're going to deal with the threat to the gospel clearly. We're going to deal with it forcibly, but we're going to do so in such a way that God can bring others to repentance. And whenever there needs to be separation, there will be clear separation. This is the gospel. This is not the gospel. Get with the gospel or recognize that you are not part of, of God's gospel ministry. And thirdly, again, we'll talk more about this as we look at the Jerusalem Council next week. A threat to the gospel must be confronted by the, both the local church and the wider community of faith. We, we don't live in an island by, by ourselves. We're, we're part of the broader community of faith. And by God's grace, we have relationships with other churches that as we come all come, come underneath the authority of Scripture, we can help understand what our blind spots are and, and what the, the truth of the gospel and its implications are. Again, we'll talk more about that as we see the dialogue next week in the coming verses of Acts 15. If you know me very well at all, you know I love unity. I love the church to be united. And it distresses me whenever we're willing to, to, to pursue disunity so quickly. I think that's a, a grave problem in the church. At the same time, you also know I love the gospel. Christians must disassociate themselves from others who call themselves Christians but deny the gospel. And when threats to the gospel exist within a church, we lovingly and forcibly confront those threats to preserve the ministry of the church for the glory of God, the great gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the life that we have in your son, Jesus. We pray that you would preserve the, the unity of your church. And as we prepare to partake of the, the supper, we, we recognize that we are proclaiming our unity. We have differences of cultural backgrounds. We have differences of opinions. We have differences of preferences. We have so many differences of so many different things. And yet, we all bow before the name of your son, Jesus. Each of us recognizes our great sin, our separation from you due to sin, the great work of your perfect son, Jesus Christ, our great high priest who intercedes on our behalf. We throw ourselves, Father, at your mercy based upon the shed blood of your son, Jesus. And Father, we just take a moment now confessing our sin to you and thanking you for your forgiveness as we ask for it as well. If you'd prepare to partake of the bread with me.
On the night that he was betrayed, after he'd given thanks, Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you'd prepare to partake of the cup with me, the cup represents the new covenant in, in Jesus' blood. Uh, the old covenant has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his, his perfect work on the cross. His blood shed inaugurates this, this new covenant that now you and I participate in, and we, we continue in not through our own works, but through our faith in Jesus Christ and his perfect work. As we partake of the, the cup together, we're proclaiming our continued faith and trust in Jesus Christ, recognizing that we, are, we grow in our walk with God not by our own efforts, but by the work of God, willing us to, to work and to pursue sanctification in Jesus Christ. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we proclaim the, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. And Father, this morning, we do look forward to your return. We rejoice this morning that, that your return is, is closer at this moment than it has ever been in, throughout the history of the church. And as your, your people gathered here this morning, we proclaim our, our faith and our confidence in your son Jesus. We have confidence that you, by your grace, will continue to complete the work that you've begun. We pray that your, your spirit would enable us and strengthen us, unite us, give us the, the ability to pursue unity in the midst of hard circumstances and hard conversations. We pray that you would grant repentance in our lives as we are confronted with sin, as we're confronted with, with patterns in our, our lives and thoughts that don't conform to your word. We pray that you would uh, bring other believers into our lives that, to help make us aware of that. Through the work of your spirit, we would be, be mindful of that and repent and place our faith in your son, Jesus. We pray that we continue, that you continue to help us persevere in our faith as we have confidence you will. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.